I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Monday's edition of History Hack. We are thrilled today to welcome Saul David, author of many, many books, both fiction and non-fiction, on Churchill, the Indian mutiny, I'm still calling it a mutiny, I don't care what Wikipedia says, uh, Victoria Wars, there was an award-winning book on the Zulu War, uh, the First World War, he is a warlord of the highest order, uh, but he's here today to talk about his talk to us about his brand new book which is currently top of the bestseller list uh, crucible of hell okinawa the last great battle of the second world war saul how are you doing very amazingly well considering i'm i'm locked away in deepest darkest somerset um yeah it's it's interesting isn't it with books we we, we do have a little bit of a window on the world and thank goodness the internet's working okay here yeah uh, so how is your lockdown? Um, have you, so we've been discussing with our guests throughout the week some of the most ludicrous things they've heard in terms of cures. So uh, my favourite one at the moment is the shoving a hairdryer up your nose um, to get rid of, apparently that will kill it. Um, and things like there's a new one because the internet has surged uh, usage that um, people now believe that if you have your microwave running at the same time you're trying to stream something on Netflix, that it will stream without pausing. Um, have you heard any of these ludicrous suggestions or um, this false information? I have. I've heard the uh, the gin and tonic one, which is is based on quinine. I, you know, there may be some vague, vague, vague connection between taking anti-malarial drugs and combating the uh, virus a tiny, tiny little bit. But the idea that you're going to get enough quinine in in gin and tonic is is a bit fanciful. That hasn't stopped me having a few. I have to say, because you know, whether it's true or not, why why not have an excuse to have a drink? That's my, that's it. I'm going to, when we're done recording this, um, we're done recording for the week and I'm going to go and stick a straw in a bottle and just have at it, I think. So thank you. You've made my day. Right. So let's get started on the history, guys. Um, congratulations on the new book. But tell us, where is Okinawa and why is the location significant? And why did they decide to hit it? Well, geographically, it's 400 miles south of the uh, southernmost home island, as they're called in Japan. So you've got, you've got the main cluster of home islands. And then you've got all the other little islands that were part of Greater Japan in, in 1945. And Okinawa is the first bit of actual, uh, I suppose you'd call it Japanese territory you come to if you're coming from the Southeast Pacific, which is the direction the Americans were coming in. So the reason they've targeted Okinawa is its size. It's about uh, 70 miles across. They're really planning to use it as a, as a uh, effectively an aircraft carrier. They're going to use it as a base for the eventual attack on Japan proper. 
So you can see it's quite strategic in its position. It's, it's uh, close enough to Japan so that bombers and, and, and fighter planes, for that matter, can get there with the easy flying distance. And also, eventually, they're going to use it as a logistical base for the, uh, for the eventual invasion of Japan. So this is the last stepping stone before the final great battle. Um, so when do they decide to hit it? They decide to hit it in uh, early spring of 1945. Actually, the exact date, the 1st of April, uh, which is just a few days away from now, 75 years on. Um, it's a bit of an arbitrary date, really. They've just attacked Iwo Jima, which is another tiny sliver of, of Japanese territory in the, in the Pacific. Uh, and their next and, and most important base that they're going to finally use before the attack on Japan is Okinawa itself. Uh, they, they're going to go in in about April. They hope the battle's not going to take too long. They're going to be uh, uh, slightly disappointed in their estimates of that. Uh, and eventually they will move on to Japan proper, probably, they hope, in the summer of 1945. Brilliant. So let, let's go to our followers. Um, Diane Holmes wants to know, and actually I really like this question, So because I don't really um, comprehend the Pacific theatre of war. Uh, in terms of significance, is Okinawa the um, Pacific equivalent of D-Day? So what are the similarities? And more generally, where does it fit in with overall strategy um, it, as far as trying to finish the war goes? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. And I think, I think you could compare it to D-Day for the Pacific uh, theatre. It's, it's the final uh, leap, as it were. If they can get a grip, if they can get on the ground on Okinawa, if they can fa finally capture the island... They, you know, this is the beginning of the end for the Japanese. The Japanese know it, which is why they fight like tooth and nail. Just to give a bit of context, since, since the beginning of the advance in the Pacific by the Americans in the summer of 1942 at Guadalcanal, which is an island in the Solomons just off uh, New Guinea, uh, there's really been a two-pronged st strategic attempt to get to Japan. One through New Guinea and the Philippines, and the other through the Central Pacific. And it's the, it's the melding of these two uh, strategies in a single location, Okinawa, uh, that gives you an indication of its importance. So they've been coming from two directions, and both those directions have ended up at Okinawa. And once they're on Okinawa, they're ready to spring for the final jump to Japan proper. So tell us about H-Hour. How does this battle begin? Uh, the landings are surprising, aren't they? Yeah, the, the, uh, a lot of the troops who go in on the first morning, H hour is actually 8.30 a.m. on the 1st of April 1945. And of course, if you're in one of those landing craft just approaching the beach, uh, you are quaking in your boots. And the reason a lot of the Marines in particular who are in those landing crafts are worried is because they had attacked an island called Peleliu the previous uh, autumn. And it had been an absolute bloodbath. There'd been terrible casualties uh, taken as they tried to get onto the beach itself and then off the beach. And a bit like D-Day, I mean, if you have the images of, of D-Day on Omaha Beach, that's what they were expecting. Incredibly, there was no opposition, or at least incredibly as it seemed to them. But the reason there was no opposition is because that was the plan from the, uh, from the Japanese. They realized that with, a, with about 100,000 soldiers, which, by the way, was an awful big garrison for one of these islands, far and away the biggest garrison that the Americans had taken on up to this point. But, but in actual fact, the Americans have got many more. They're, they've got a force in the water of about 180,000 combat troops 
ready to land. They don't, of course, all land on the first day, but ready to land and more to, be, to come behind that. So the Japanese are well aware, not only are they, do they have an inferiority in numbers, but also in terms of firepower. The Americans pretty much are going to rule the skies and they have the uh, majority of naval assets as well. So talk to us about, um, so it, as you say, it's a trap. Um, so tell us about what happens in the next few days. Well, what happens after the Americans get on shore is that they make a very quick progress. They're able to cross the island. They've actually uh, landed about halfway up the island. The island's very long and thin. In some places, it's only a few miles across. It's 70 miles long, but, but you know, ranging between about 20 miles to ranging between three miles to 20 miles across. And it doesn't take the Americans long to cut the island in two. And of course, they're delighted. The commander Buckner is thinking this is going to be pretty easy from this point. Uh, the, the Americans have made very rapid progress. Uh, they've crossed the island. They've cut it in two. And then they, they don't know exactly where the Japanese are, of course, because the Japanese have hidden. They, they've built these very cleverly constructed defenses in the center of the island, most of them in the south of the island, so that when they go north, there's, there's almost no opposition at all until they get to the Oroku Peninsula, which is, you know, a hard-fought battle that takes place uh, during the first part of April. But it's as they're moving south that they begin to come to the first defences of this really incredibly formidable defensive system that is known as the Shuri Line. Uh, Shuri being the old capital, the old imperial capital of Okinawa before the Japanese took it over. And it's this defensive system that is going to cause the Americans so many casualties. So where did the Americans go from here? Isn't this where we encounter Hacksaw Ridge? And how true to life is the actual film? Yeah, it's, you know, there are a lot of famous moments in this battle that a lot of people might not be aware of. The film Hacksaw Ridge, which was set in a feature known as the Maider Escarpment, was indeed, as you suggest, Alina, uh, one of the earliest defensive positions that the Americans come across. And of course, they've got no idea how formidable it is. And the reason Hacksaw Ridge and many of these other ridges, they're not particularly high. Uh, but the reason they're so formidable is because the Japanese soldiers have actually buried down into them so that not only have you got to get to the crest and overwhelm the crest, which is what you do in normal military attacks, but you've also got to get inside the feature itself into all those tunnels uh, and bunkers that the Japanese are hiding in. And if you don't get in them and winkle them out, which is what they had to do, they are going to shoot you in the back as you pass by their position. So these were incredibly dangerous features. Now, the film itself, Hacksaw Ridge, is relatively true to life. I wouldn't say 100%. And one of the first things that struck me when I visited Okinawa and had a look at the Maeda Escarpment is that actually it's relatively uh, low. It's probably only about 40, 40 feet down the, the actual place where uh, Desmond Doss, uh, the man who saves all those soldiers, um, actually lowers them down. I mean, from the film, it looks like about 200 feet. It's only about 40 feet, but that, that certainly doesn't um, take away from the feet of what Doss achieved that day because in very simple terms he and his um his company had been swept off the ridge leaving just the wounded and him he was a medic now he would have been in his rights to have followed the, the rest of the fighting men but he didn't he stayed behind and one by one he lowered uh wounded men off admittedly not down a massive incline but but 40 feet down and all the while if the Japanese had realized at any moment what was going on they'd have been able to advance and kill everyone including Doss so it was an incredible feat of bravery it took him about five hours and he was justly uh, and quite rightly awarded the medal of honor 
Um, you've already alluded to this, and it's something I, I'd really like to hear more about, um, is the Japanese determination not to give way, um, because it results in absolute savagery. Um, can you tell us a bit about this, um, especially Sugarloaf Hill? Yes, the, um, uh, the modus operandi for uh, all Japanese soldiers at this stage of the war was to fight to the last. That, that was partly down to orders from Tokyo, but also partly down to the whole uh, military ethos of the, of the Japanese. Uh, they had a feeling that, you know, to sacrifice your life for the greater good, that is the state, the emperor was entirely what was expected of you to surrender was dishonorable and this meant that not only were they very good soldiers they were soldiers who weren't prepared to give in so this led to some unbelievably brutal fighting and you know as i've already suggested the only way you could get them out of some of these defensive positions is is literally by burning them out uh winkling them out sending troops in to to you know to take them on in in hand-to-hand -hand combat it was an incredibly brutal form of fighting and some of the effects that were you know the results of that on the american servicemen you can see by the huge number of men who uh, were taken out of the line for battle fatigue some something like twenty-five thousand of them that is a third of the total american casualties of the whole battle and will give you a give you a sense of the you know the appalling conditions in which they were expected to fight that's actually really interesting because um, the next question quite nicely folds in here. It's actually from Alex's mum, funnily enough. Um, and, My mum is she's fully know. involved, isn't she, in this podcast? Go on. She is. It's actually something I want to know more about because I quite find these guys really fascinating. Um, so can you tell us more about the kamikaze? I mean, who were these guys? What, what were they there for? And what was their mentality? I mean, the kamikaze to us in the West have, have sort of mythical status, don't they? We, you know, and, and the question is a very good one, which is how on earth does it come about that, that, that these people would be prepared to, you know, literally effectively be suicide bombers in the Second World War? And I've hinted at some of the reason, which is the military ethos in the, in the uh, Japanese army, Japanese navy, Japanese air force at that time was very much a sense of self-sacrifice. They didn't have this Christian Judeo tradition that suicide was, you know, uh, was beyond the pale. It was absolutely accepted and in many cases it was expected. So what you find with a lot of the kamikaze, and the kamikaze, by the way, really only get uh, going in terms of, of uh, being properly organized towards the end of 1944, when the going is really bad for the Japanese and they realize they need desperate measures. Uh, but it's interesting that the people who actually form most of these core of, of the kamikaze are, were formerly ordinary servicemen. They, they aren't particularly special troops. They are specially trained, of course, to do the job they need to do. But they don't, you know, they, they, they ask for volunteers and they are pretty much overwhelmed with people. And we're talking about thousands of them who are prepared to fly planes, uh, fly, fly manned rockets, fly manned submarines loaded with explosives into American ships. It's astonishing what they were prepared to do. And one of the things I was determined to do with the book was to humanize them, was to get a sense of who they were and why they did what they did. And as a result of that, you get some really tragic human stories like the kamikaze pilot, for example, who asked before his mission if he could marry his stepsister. She agrees, they marry, they spend one night together. She never sees him again, of course. Uh, but in that one night, she's become pregnant. And they, they were trying to take as much as possible people who 
were uh, not married. They were looking for people who did not have particularly close ties. So the pilot I'd, I'd mentioned, for example, that was a bit out of order for him to agree to marry. But some of them, of course, were married. Uh, and this didn't lessen their determination. And interestingly, Alex, it didn't lessen the determination of the families to support them in what they were doing. In fact, the lady I mentioned who married her stepbrother actually said if he hadn't carried out his mission, it would have been shameful. You know, I expected him to. Now, she's saying that that was the way she felt at the time. Of course, many years later, she horrified. She was horrified at what he'd done. It just is something I think culturally I, I can't wrap my head around it. Um, but tell us, how does it end in the battle at Okinawa? But, and, and can you also touch on this, uh, what the civilian population endured in these 83 days? Because it is horrific, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Another of the elements of the book I was determined to bring out is the is the view from the perspective of the Okinawans. And it's not a pretty view. I mean, even before the Americans have landed, the Japanese have, have convinced them. I mean, they pretty much brainwashed them into believing that they're going to be brutalized by the Americans. And therefore, if it gets down to it, that they're almost going to be captured, they should commit suicide effectively. And this happens in enormous numbers. Now, if you add to that, of course, all the casualties that you're bound to see when you're in or near a, a battle zone, uh, you know, unintended casualties, but casualties nonetheless, you get an enormous number of, of poor Okinawans. In fact, something like we believe a third of the pre-island population uh, of 375,000, that is 125,000 uh, Okinawans lost their lives, but an awful lot of those uh, die because the Japanese have convinced them that they need to commit suicide. And there's some absolutely heartbreaking stories in, in the book, including one about a 16-year-old boy writing many years later saying, describing, literally describing the moment when he killed his, his siblings and his mother. I'm going to ask about something quite important now, um, because we can't talk about this without talking about the consequences of what actually happened next. No, we really can't, because looking at this mess, um, isn't it right, Saul, that President Truman starts to look for any alternative to, to having to endure a repeat of fighting like this, doesn't he? And the alternative changes the world. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's of course the end of the book, but it's a, it's a really crucial part of the book, given the consequences. And, uh, and really, it's all summed up by a meeting uh, that the American military and President Truman have on the 18th of June, in which the military say to him, look, We've conquered Okinawa now. Next, next stop is Japan. We're going to go in on the 1st of November and the casualties are going to be huge. And Truman is really sobered by this. You know, they are thinking about probably a million casualties if they land on, on uh, Japan proper. Uh, and that, by the way, is not just American casualties. It's also going to be British casualties too. So Truman quite understandably asks uh, his chiefs if there's any alternative and actually there is an alternative. He's heard a little bit about the atomic program, but of course they don't know if it works. Uh, and to, you know, to, to sum it all up, the end of the meeting is, okay, we've got these weapons. If they work, that is once they've been tested, I will consider using them because it, it would save lives, frankly, if I, if I do that. So that's the plan. They're going to warn the Japanese that they're going to use them. And if they don't listen to the warning, then they actually plan to use them. And of course, they don't listen to the warning, do they? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. No, they don't listen to the warning. Um, uh, they are given a pretty explicit warning. They ignore it. And one of the reasons they ignore it is because you've still got a lot of extreme hardliners in the in the uh, Japanese military and the Japanese uh, political system who don't want to uh, agree to you uh, to unconditional surrender which is what the Americans and the allies are demanding and so uh, they don't respond and as a result you get Hiroshima again there's no response people often ask why why Nagasaki well because the Japanese didn't respond to Hiroshima do you then have Nagasaki three days later uh, and that, it's at that point that the uh, Japanese emperor is finally persuaded by some of the more moderates in his government to begin peace negotiations. And that eventually leads to unconditional surrender on the 14th. Uh, but Truman, to his dying day, is convinced he's done the right thing. And his belief is not only has he saved American lives, he's also saved Japanese lives. And I know it's hard to get your heads around, uh, Alex and Alina, but if you look at the detail, if you look at the last chapter of the book, I'll be interested to know what your your conclusion uh, will be when you've read all that material, because in my view, I don't think uh, Truman really had an option. Um, I'm with you. I just recorded this um, for War Factories for a nuclear episode for the new series. And I, I say on camera, um, and I don't know what they'll use of it, but I say that you are dealing in a horrific new world of extremes. Um, and it's one, there are two alternatives. Both of them are shocking and horrific um, and inhuman. But you have to pick one of them. This Because everybody's not going to pack up and go home. And they picked the one that cost the least lives. But that said, can, can you just uh, put it into perspective? Um, do you cover in the book exactly what it was like when they dropped those bombs? Yes, I do. I, you know, I felt it was important. If you're, if you're going to set out the, you know, the, the detail leading up to the decision to use the bombs, you've also got to portray the, the consequences. And they are, uh, as I'm sure you know, horrific. Yeah, and I've got first-hand accounts of, of uh, a lot of, of course, the Japanese, the suffering that goes on on the ground, the, the, the experience of being on the ground quite close to the epicenter of the explosion. I mean, it's, it's beyond horrific. Um, and interesting enough, there are even some allied soldiers who were caught up in it too. Um, total number of, of dead, they estimate now, of course, the figures are always changing, probably up to 200,000, not just on the days, but in the, in the weeks and months afterwards. Uh, but many fewer than were actually than actually lost their lives or would have lost their lives if they'd been in an attack and 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 you know it's those cold-blooded statistics you need to keep in mind when you're making an evaluation of whether it was the right thing to do alina what do I mean, you I think i agree i was going to say i actually agree with i i do agree with both of you but i was going to for fun just for fun do an alternative sort of argument but i don't know if it's, it's there's no point really because it is it was the lesser of two evil at the end of the day um and i and i did some extra reading to see what else i could put in but 
the argument's there, and I completely agree with both of you. It's just the it's the lesser of two horrific evils, isn't it? Unfortunately. Exactly. Actually, I've got I've got a quick question before we jump in anywhere else. So, um, for me, I found it really fascinating um, when the Japanese actually surrendered, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little, um, if you can, a little bit about uh, the Emperor's speech uh, when he had to broadcast to the Japanese people. Yeah, I mean, the, the emperor's, you've got to remember, or at least I need to remind you that the, the emperor was a semi-deity, you know, he was, his, his word was, was everything. And a lot of uh, the soldiers, of course, had, had sworn personal allegiance to him, a bit like the Germans had to Hitler. And uh, his word was, was going to determine whether the war went on or stopped. So that speech on the 14th was absolutely crucial. He had to make it. It was the first time many, many people in Japan had ever heard his voice, actually. Uh, but having said those words that the war must end, it really was going to be over. Having said that, there were still one or two fanatics, including the guy who'd really been in charge of the kamikaze program, uh, a vice admiral, who then says, OK, I'm not paying any attention to that. He gets in the nearest plane, sets off on a one-way kamikaze mission and is never seen again. Um, so, yes, it ended the war, but there were still some, some real extremists uh, in, in uh, Japan, some of whom who committed suicide that way and some of whom who just committed ritual suicide. So you mentioned the extremists, but generally, what was the response into J in, in Japan to be told by this semi-deity, we have lost and it's over? Yeah, they were horrified. I mean, you, you can imagine, can't you, the Japanese people? I mean, we, we need to remember that even the civilians up to a certain point were absolutely rooting for the war effort. You know, as, as uh, Japan expanded its empire, those policies were generally quite popular. And as the empire began to shrink and the people of Japan, particularly after the bombings of, of Tokyo uh, in the spring of 1945, were, were getting the full effect of war themselves, then, of course, the view of, you know, how positive a thing war, the war was began to change. But there was still unbelievable shock that they had lost the war because they, it had really been kept from them how bad things were getting. There was always a kind of sense oh, the military or our leaders can pull this out of the bag for us. So, yeah, there was an enormous amount of shock. Uh, and, you know, and everything changed, I think, uh, forever at that point, not just the use of the nuclear weapons, but the attitude uh, by Japanese people towards their emperor in terms of seeing him as a semi-deity. Having said that, of course, he, there is still an emperor in Japan even today. Um, you know, he's still re greatly respected, but not held in quite the same regard. And um, just, you know, we were talking about, uh, and we've quite clinically, as Western historians, sat here and said that um, the dropping of the bombs was the, the lesser of two horrific evils and it did save lives. Um, do you know what the contemporary Japanese view, like as in today, is? Yeah, and I've got first-hand accounts of, of uh, a lot of, of course, the Japanese the suffering that goes on on the ground, the, the, the experience of being on the ground quite close to the epicenter of the explosion. I mean, it's, it's beyond horrific. Um, and interesting enough, there are even some allied soldiers who were caught up in it too. Um, total number of, of dead, they estimate now, of course, the figures are always changing, probably up to 200,000, not just on the days, but in the, in the weeks and months afterwards. Uh, but many fewer than, were actually, than actually lost their lives or would have lost their lives if they'd been in an attack. And, 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 you know, it's those cold-blooded statistics you need to keep in mind when you're making an evaluation of whether it was the right thing to do. Alina, what I do mean, you I think? I actually agree. 
was going to say, I actually agree with, I, I do agree with both of you, but I was going to, for fun, just for fun, do an alternative sort of argument. But I don't know if it's, it's there's no point really, because it is, it was the lesser of two evil at the end of the day. Um, and, I, and I did some extra reading to see what else I could put in, but the argument's there and I completely agree with both of you. It's just the, it's the lesser of two horrific evils, isn't it? Unfortunately. Exactly. Actually, I've got, I've got a quick question before we jump in anywhere else. So um, for me, I found it really fascinating um, when the Japanese actually surrendered. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little, um, if you can, a little bit about uh, the Emperor's speech uh, when he had to broadcast to the Japanese people. Yeah, I mean, the, the emperor, you've got to remember, or at least I need to remind you that the, the emperor was a semi-deity, you know, he was, his, his word was, was everything. And a lot of uh, the soldiers, of course, had, had sworn personal allegiance to him, a bit like the Germans had to Hitler. And uh, his word was, was going to determine whether the war went on or stopped. So that speech on the 14th was absolutely crucial. He had to make it. It was the first time many people in Japan had ever heard his voice, actually. Uh, but having said those words that the war must end, it really was going to be over. Having said that, there were still one or two fanatics, including the guy who'd really been in charge of the kamikaze program, uh, a vice admiral, who then says, OK, I'm not paying any attention to that. He gets in the nearest plane sets off on a one-way kamikaze mission and is never seen again. Um, so, yes, it ended the war, but there were still some, some real extremists uh, in, in uh, Japan, some of whom who committed suicide that way and some of whom who just committed ritual suicide. So you mentioned the extremists, but generally, what was the response into J uh, in, in Japan to be told by this semi-deity, we have lost and it's over? Yeah, they were horrified. I mean, you, you can imagine, can't you, the Japanese people? I mean, we, we need to remember that even the civilians up to a certain point were absolutely rooting for the war effort. You know, as, as uh, Japan expanded its empire, those policies were generally quite popular. And as the empire began to shrink and the people of Japan, particularly after the bombings of, of Tokyo, in the spring of 1945, we're getting the full effect of war themselves. Then, of course, the view of, you know, how positive a thing war, the war was began to change. But there was still unbelievable shock that they had lost the war because they, it had really been kept from them how bad things were getting. There was always a kind of sense, oh, the military or, or our leaders can pull this out of the bag for us. So, yeah, there was enormous amount of shock. Uh, and, you know, and everything changed, I think, uh, forever at that point, not just the use of the nuclear weapons, but the attitude uh, by Japanese people towards their emperor in terms of seeing him as a semi-deity. Having said that, of course, he, there is still an emperor in Japan even today. Um, you know, he's still re greatly respected, but not held in quite the same regard. Um, just, you know, we were talking about, uh, and we've quite clinically, as Western historians, sat here and said that um, the dropping of the bombs was the, the lesser of two horrific evils, and it did save lives. Um, do you know what the contemporary Japanese view? 
No, certainly most contemporary Japanese wouldn't go as far as that. You, you'll get the odd liberal saying, well, we, we got what was coming to us because, you know, we had a warmongering government. But the general view among Japanese today is that the dropping of the bombs was unacceptable because of the civilian casualties caused. It's a little bit like the question you might ask in Germany today about Dresden. If you ask people in Dresden whether they think it was acceptable uh, to bomb their city with conventional weapons, they would say, the vast majority would say no, they would say it was a war crime and so do uh, modern Japanese. So I'm afraid you have two pretty inflexible views now. I think um, we're um, going to go completely nerdy now and we apologise to any non-historians uh, listening to this. Alina, go on, because I really want to know as well. Yeah, I know. We were actually discussing this before you came on, Saul. Um, it's, we're really fascinated. We want to know, where did you get your sources from? Because they're really incredible. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it was a wonderful project for me. I, I, uh, I had a lot of support both from American and, and uh, UK publishers, and therefore I had the resources to do a really proper job on this book. I was able to uh, research in the UK, in the US, in archives all over the US. And the interesting thing about the US, before I move on to Japan, is that the US have, have a huge cache of debrief Japanese sources. So one of the key things for this, this book was really to find the Japanese and Okinawan sources. And wh one of the locations I was able to get a lot of Japanese sources was in, uh, in America itself, in the, in the debriefs that are held in the American archives. But also I went to Tokyo, uh, the archives there, and I went to Okinawa. And Okinawa, most heartbreakingly, has a series of museums, peace museums as they call them, uh, rather optimistically I think, but you know, understandably, in which they've got first-hand accounts by Okinawans during the whole period of the battle, and particularly the last stage of the battle, and some of the material is absolutely heartbreaking. But, you know, it was important not just to go and, and, and get that material from the archives, but also to see the location of the battle itself. Um, and, you know, it's a very strange island. It, it's, it's very heavily built up now, but you can still see this incredibly tough terrain that they fought over. It's really volcanic rock. So that if you can imagine you're trying to attack a hillside that's effectively constructed of volcanic rock, you can't dig into it to protect yourself by, you know, by, by creating a trench. You can really only either use dynamite, which is what the Japanese did to correct create their fortifications or build build up little rock walls to protect yourself so it was a brutal place to fight um, but yes seeing the location and finding the documents was really the you know the ice you know the, the the key moment for me for this book going to Okinawa. I just think you have to be completely commended for um for not just taking the easy way out and doing kind of a western view of it but to actually because I, I would think is a book about Japanese. I, don't, I was going to ask you if you'd had to learn to read and speak Japanese to do it, or if you did, or, but um, no, it, it's brilliant that not only are you to be commended for going out and, and being determined to do it, but the people that supported you to do it as well. Um, and I'm excited because there's going to be a follow-up, isn't there? Yeah, there is. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not a direct follow-up from the Battle of Okinawa, but it does include Okinawa. So actually, even before the idea for, for the book on Okinawa came about, I was thinking of possibly doing a, a story of a single unit of American soldiers who fought all the way through the Pacific. It's, it, believe it or not, it's never been done before, sort of Band of Brothers in the Pacific. And although uh, there was a big HBO series called The Pacific, it was based, uh, well, it wasn't based on a book. There was no book. They, they wrote a book to go with the series. And the problem with 
the Pacific as a concept, in my view, is that it's a lot of disconnected stories. What, what works so well with Band of Brothers, you've got a single group of soldiers. You get to know and you follow through the sequence of the war. And so that's what I'm planning to do. I've chosen a unit. I, I'm not going to say what it is. Okay. And, and it'll fight all the way. And it'll fight all the way from Guadalcanal to, to Okinawa. And, and that'll be the end, end of the book. And, and it, within the prism of that small group of men, you will have the whole story of America's uh, war, as it were, in the Pacific. I know it sounds brilliant because you're right. The Pacific. So they used Leckie, didn't they? they he was a Marine. That's is that right? right? Um, but the other guy yeah, wasn't, they, was he? It was two memoirs they, mashed together. And it wasn't their fault because the continuity that's in Band of Brothers doesn't exist. But, but it just isn't the same, is it? Yeah, you can see why they were tempted to do the Pacific because, um, you know, there's an amazing story. And if they could do a Band of Brothers for the Pacific, it would, you know, they hoped it would work as well. But there wasn't a book that told the story from the perspective of a single unit. So they mashed together a lot of separate stories, some of which were vaguely connected, but none of whom were all in the same unit. And therefore you're endlessly jumping around the story. I mean, they, the, the salute, the, one of the good things about doing it that way is that they were able to tell all the stories from you know, all the great moments. But I feel it's much more important, much, make, makes much more sense to have the continuity of a single unit. So that's the plan for the next book. So what you're saying is HBO should have waited for you to do this book before they uh, jumped the gun and that you should have, uh, they should have paid the, the uh, rights to turn yours into a TV show. That's exactly what I'm saying, Alex. <laughs> will that happen? No, hell will freeze over first. But, um, <laughs> but you never know. I mean, it's a, a, a big, a big, a big um, uh, <laughs> what would you call it? A big HBO series. That's not going to happen because they've already done it. But of course, there, there are going to be some great stories in there. And, you know, the Pacific, I, there, ha there have been some good things uh, produced on the Pacific, but Thin Red Line being, being one of the best. But That's my favourite. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? But but yeah. actually, there's there's a there's a lot more material that they could be using. Um, so who knows? We'll see. I just, do you know what? We could go on for hours. Um, I know Alex and I would be quite happy, <laughs> and we've got about a hundred other questions to ask you. Um, but we are running a bit short on time, so we are going to say thank you so much, and we cannot wait to get our hands on the new book. And I'm assuming um, everybody else now they've heard this podcast is going to want a copy too. So we're going to say thank you very much. Have a lovely day. And um, Alex, who have we got on tomorrow? So tomorrow um, we're kind of continuing with the theme of um, looking at things from multiple national perspectives. Uh, so uh, I, you, you don't care about World War I, I know that, but I wanted to do something different and I didn't just want to pick the most predictable people to come on. Um, and my philosophy was that we all tramp in and out of Belgium doing our research and eating all the chocolate and drinking all the beer and eat. But very few people have a, a comprehensive understanding of the Belgian experience of the First World War. So we have a fantastic introduction to it coming tomorrow. We have Gregory Vafai and uh, Martial Machelein, who both grew up on the battlefields, uh, one in Ypres and one, um, he lives near Polygon Wood. And they're going to talk to us. Oh, we've talked about everything with them from refugees to local girls being prostitutes to the army we've got their family history it's just a really good overview of the belgian perspective of world war one so i'm really excited about putting that out for you um saul thank you so much thanks alex thanks alina great to talk to you enjoy the gin and tonics oh we will and you <laughs> thank, thank you so you. much
Remember, everyone, but above all else, stay safe and where you possibly can, stay home. This is Nighthawk signing off. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.